I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Aloha, spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. As always, as always, as always, I am your host, Aaron Sagers, a journalist, an author, a researcher of all things weird. Currently, I can also be seen on Travel Channel and Discovery Plus's Paranormal Caught on Camera. And today we're talking about witchcraft and Hollywood, as well as some timely topics such as the Satanic Panic and how that's connected to witchcraft and Hollywood. And, you know, the witch is uh, as a cultural archetype has existed in some form since the beginning of recorded history and her nature has changed through technological developments and socio-cultural shifts that is very much a statement that comes from the book lights camera witchcraft a critical history of witches in american film and television in lights camera and witchcraft We trace the figure of the witch through American cinematic history from 1896 to 2020 with an analysis of the entertainment industry's shifting boundaries concerning expressions of femininity, focusing on films and television series from Bewitched to the Craft. Uh, And the book, this book, in fact, right here, this book uh, also looks reflects on the changing gender roles, a religion, the modern practice of witchcraft and, and female agency. And it is written by our guest, Heather Green. She's a freelance writer, a religion journalist and editor, received a BA at Wesleyan University in film and an MA in film studies from Emory University, studied film theater at Cornell University and the University of Paris, and has been studying witchcraft and the occult for more than 30 years and has written for Turner Classic Movies, The Wild Hunt, Circle Magazine, Pathios.com, other outlets, and her work can currently be seen at Religion News Service and Religion Unplugged. And she is also a member of the Circle Sanctuary, the Covenant of the Goddess, and the Religion News Writers Association. So, Heather, welcome to Talking Strange. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I can't wait yes. to talk witches today. I know. I'm I'm excited. I, first off, uh, really great book. It you definitely get more than your money's worth of content. This is a big old book of research. Before I get into the nuts and bolts of it, as as a journalist myself and a researcher, how long did it take you to put all of this together? Well. Um, I could say uh, the long story would probably be about 25 years, but that's a whole nother, uh, a whole nother story <laughs> hmm. um, from, from the idea of doing it to actually doing it. There was a lot of years between, but um, the actual saying, okay, now it's time beginning the research for this particular incarnation through, I would say maybe about five years. Okay. A lot of TV and movie watching. A lot of TV. That was the fun part. Um, TV, movie watching, um, and then some trips to the archives um, and um, lots of reading of academic sources as well as, you know, reader um, responses to movies and just a lot of research was involved. And and a lot of it, most of it was fun in the end. Well, I guess the why question comes up. The why you, why this topic, why is this something that you decided to sink your teeth into, think about for 20 years, and then really intently focus on for at least five years? And that's a great question. And it, it really gets to the um, the trends in witch, witchcraft and, and witch films um, that we've seen. And, and so the first, the idea came about in uh, the late 90s and that was after the craft when charmed and buffy the vampire slayer and sabrina were all on television i noticed a trend that there was this popularity of witchcraft um, shows in the media either on a small scale or a larger scale and so i said there's something to this why is this happening right now so that's when i was um, still in grad school and i was like this is what i want to do the work but then um, i had to put it on pause life happens as as we say and um and then I noticed uh, I was I was doing journalism. I I 
gotten back into writing regularly and was um, uh, more involved with the uh, media and the pagan community and the modern witchcraft community. And I saw it happening again. I started to see the trends in around 2013, 2014, think um, Beautiful Creatures and American Horror Story Coven and Salem. All these shows were coming out. And we saw this happening again, just like the 90s. I said, whoa, 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 wait, what's going on here? This is happening again. Now I'm going to do what I was going to do in the 90s. I'm going to do it now. And that's right. what started it. It that seems like it seems like based on what you write about early in the book, it, it maybe the seeds were planted early on when you were a little girl watching Wizard of Oz. Oh, oh, absolutely. And my interest in the occult and witchcraft and um, the supernatural and anything like that was definitely planted early on. I love The Wizard of Oz. It was one, my, I say it's my favorite movie now. I loved it as a child. I loved um, Sabrina the cartoon. Um, the concept of a, a lot of the a lot of the things that witchcraft stands for, and not just witchcraft, but other aspects of the occult. I started studying tarot um, in the early '90s in college, and um, so the seeds were definitely planted, as they were for film in general, because um, I was fascinated with golden era golden era Hollywood films right from the beginning. So it was sort of a merger of my two interests, you know, uh, the performance art movies in specifically and as well as my interest in the occult and witchcraft you you talk about through at least the 60s it seems like margaret hamilton who was the wicked witch from wizard of oz that she tended to pop up periodically sometimes as herself and then donning the character of the wicked witch through various things, including in Mr. Rogers and on Sesame street and on other shows, uh, the Paul Lind show, I believe is one that she shows up in, but how did she change the game? Obviously not just for you, but how did she change the game for the character of the witch? Because you talk about how witches were present very, very early on in American film. Um, well, you know, she, Margaret Hamilton herself, um, I don't think it was her aim to change anything. I don't even think it was uh, the producers of that film's idea that they were changing anything. What The one thing that they did change was um, our concept of, of the witch having green skin. That came specifically from The Wizard of Oz. But in terms of our ideas about witchcraft and witches, I think the interesting thing to note, I don't think it changed anything, but the interesting thing to note is that there were two witches in that film, Glinda and the Wicked Witch of the West. Um, and yet it seems that the Wicked Witch of the West um, in, in, and Margaret Hamilton have been the one that's been featured more. She's had more significance, more prominence in our culture and our fascination than Glinda. And, and I, I adore Glinda too, but she, it seems that Margaret Hamilton's character has sustained a power that the other one hasn't, which is interesting because the Wicked Witch is evil. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, again, as you kind of talk about the later on, the green skin is presented as a way of uh, making her seem monstrous but later it's uh it's a way of depicting otherness and um racial discrimination such as in the movie uh wick or the play wicked um alphaba is that her character's name yeah, yeah. exactly and that's ex that points to the change um she got a backstory first in the in the novels and then broadway and i believe they are trying to put put that on bring it to the silver screen as well um that the that she turns out to be correct she mm -hmm. turns out to be the witch turns out to be the good guy um we didn't know the backstory behind and we see a lot of that going on with movies today with with evil characters characters giving us backstories that show us oh we might not agree with what they did but uh we understand why they did it um so this, there's been a flip recently you and the, the book is focusing on American television and film. Obviously, there's so many different depictions of witches and witchcraft uh, across the globe. And there's so much material that you could cover. I understand why you had to narrow it down. And it's still a big book. <laughs> um, the, the, the depiction, the sort of the, the kind of categories, the buckets that you tend to fall within are the 
the types of witches, the accused woman, the wild woman, and the fantasy witch. Can you kind of talk a little bit about those three categories and was that just extrapolated by looking large at these genre and or are they the characters and saying, oh, okay, this is where it always fits or talk about the the evolution of those categories and and the definition of each. Sure. Um, well, you know, when I went into this, I said, I'm going to let Hollywood lead. Uh, I'm not going to assume or or make structures on the book until I find out what's out there, because I had no idea other than the, my limited viewing at that point. So over time, there was a light bulb went off and I said, wait a minute, there's three main categories. And this helped me present it. This helps me present it to the reader to demonstrate the flow and the changes. And so it really worked out pretty nicely. Um, in the in the early days, it's very clear, the, the categories. Um, and, and that makes sense to a, a Hollywood that was limited and also censored. Um, more recently, there's a lot of crossover between them. And you can see bits and pieces and transitions from one to the other. And I talk about that uh, at the end of the book, last few chapters. Um, so who are they? So the accused woman is the most, the easiest. She, this is the Salem story. This is the woman who is not magical. She doesn't have any magical powers of any kind. But what she does is misstep and is for one reason or another, according to society and becomes an accused witch. She it's the classic Salem story, Joan of Arc, etc. Um, so those are the most limited, but it's the, the clearest to see. Um, although sometimes the accused woman could wind up coming back as, as, as a wild woman, which is the next category, especially in the ghost and paranormal films of the 90s. Um, so the wild woman is a witch whose magic has to be explained. And that's how I define her. She doesn't have magic just because. She has magic because she either has studied satanic ritual. She has magic because she's been given a power by some deity, typically a God-given power. Think of like, um, well, Carrie, Carrie is not really, Carrie is an example, but her power didn't come from God. We don't know where her power came from, um, but there are examples of that. Um, her power has to be explained. She's an herbalist. Um, she is uh, some uh, some other type of um, defined magical uh, practitioner. She's wild. Um, and that practice makes her wild. The last category is fantasy. So fantasy, which is uh, they're ma they're magical, definitely, but their magic doesn't need to be explained. Typically, because they're they're in the fantasy genre, and magic just is. So the film the the film just um, defines her as such. So, but it's not necessarily uh, in the fantasy genre. So Samantha is a fantasy witch. She's not in a fantasy genre, but her magic doesn't need to be explained. It just is, and we accept it. So that's the fantasy witch. Those are the three main categories, and there are a lot of subcategories in that. Yeah, and and you do yeah towards um towards the end of the book you do talk about sort of the crossover. We're looking at characters like Maleficent that starts out in in one form as more of an accused and then becomes more of the I believe fantasy witch uh, at the you know through her story. Um, so kind of yeah we're we're getting a little bit of everything now. But in the early era, early filmmaking of uh. American film, I think there's this tendency to believe that perhaps it was always, we were always viewing the witch in those early days as evil or perhaps um, worthy of, of that, maybe not worthy of the persecution, but evil, evil others. That maybe was not the case in early cinema, right? The, there were examples of, of the innocent and even maybe a sympathetic gaze given to the witches? Absolutely. And, you know, the most number of Salem style stories, and I use Salem uh, because that's the, um, the American witch trial standard um, as far as a narrative standard. These films um, didn't tell the Salem story necessarily, but the, the most amount were done in the silent era during a time when, when Hollywood loved to tell historical, sort of historical films or based on hist history, people were eating these up. So we saw a ton of this happening in the, um, in the silent era. So you had a lot of accused women then. 
And you also didn't have the dynamic evil that we saw later on. What you have mostly are witches who were, um, if they were bad, they were just mischievous. They were secondary characters. Often the bad ones or the evil ones were secondary characters serving uh, the true um, uh, opponent, the, the true evil figure. So there weren't that many really truly evil witches until you start to see in the in the 30s and 40s some pop up and it really isn't until the 70s and 80s and 90s that you see the extremes happening in that respect yeah and i uh i'm i'm gonna get to that in a moment i, I want to talk in another minute about mm -hmm. some other big movements before we get into the 70s and 80s the let's talk about bewitch for a moment because you know you you talk about you, you write in the book that the witch archetype exists in the two modes one of oppression and one of empowerment and then you get and you discuss sort of feminism and the role of women in society and how it kind of aligns with the depiction of witches talk more about bewitched and where bewitched fits within that because it it seems i mean i loved bewitch i i i grew up on on reruns of Bewitched and definitely had a crush on Elizabeth Montgomery, but I just love the show. But as you examine in your book, there's sort of two different approaches at looking at Bewitched, depending on where you, where, where, uh, where your opinions are about gender roles and, and the role of the witch. So talk a little bit about the importance of Bewitched and, and where you kind of came to settle on that particular uh, piece of TV. Well, you know, it, it's it's iconic um, and lasted for uh, I think nine years, and um, and a lot of what it was doing was during that period of time, starting I believe in 1964, and walking the line between what Hollywood and TV had been doing and trying to transition or comment on what was coming because Hollywood was struggling at the time, trying to find the voice. So Bewitch sort of walks that line, and it walks the line in terms of uh, women's empowerment. Um, specifically, amongst other things, because it's it's showing Samantha, this witch, who is trying to give up her witchdom. I think that's what the producer said. She doesn't want to be a witch, necessarily. Um, so she's trying to give up her power. She's trying to say, I don't want to do this, but she can't. And that's the message that it's sending to women at the time, that if um, that you are who you are, you can't give that up. Why bother? And so she's constantly trying. And in the end, almost every show, she's, she and her magic save the day. Um, but yet every time she's constantly trying, she's trying to be um, uh, uh, June Cleaver. She's mm -hmm. trying to be the 1950s perfect housewife, but she fails every time. And the key aspect of this uh, to understand is that witchcraft, if it's an allegory for a woman's power, you can see how this fits. She's trying to give up her power, her internal and natural power to fit into a societal role, a gender role that had been expected up until that point. Um, so here she is trying to do it, but she can't, she can't relinquish her heritage. She can't relinquish her internal power. And every time it's the thing that saves the day. So it's a really interesting take. And the producers acknowledge that, um, the show also stood on the line, making commentary on, um, interracial or interreligious marriages between cultures, people getting married and the, and the negotiations that had to happen. And you see that coming through as well, all masked in this uh, perfectly packaged comedy. So it's a brilliant show. Um, there were there are some uh, feminist critics that say um, she, her trying to be the perfect housewife all in 1950s was not uh, makes it not a great show um, and harmful to the movement, while others see it the other way. I tend to see it the other way. I think it was a great step forward for witchcraft and the representation of witchcraft as well as for women. Yeah, and it always struck me as it wasn't really necessarily something I appreciated when I was watching it as a little kid. But as a little kid, I was like, oh, Samantha, yeah, saving the day. And it's Darren that's trying to be a loving husband, but is ultimately an oaf. And he's surrounded by these very mortal human oafs as well, like Larry Tate, you know. Uh, meanwhile, she was, she was the boss, you know, so the, 
she saved the day. And I love that. And later I realized like, well, we're also dealing with sort of a variety of other witches. We're getting sort of a diversity of witches in that show as well. Uh, did that make it notable as a pop culture entry uh, as well? Um, actually, it didn't because you have the same thing happening in I Married a Witch, which was 1942, and then Bell Book and Candle, 1957, I believe. And you have, um, and, and actually, people think that uh, that Bewitched is actually um, a copy of those. It's from the TV version of those. And, and they said it influenced them, but it's not. It's its own thing. And neither were the other two. They're all independent of each other, but they all give that sense of the witch a family with different types of witches involved. But if you, getting back to your first question about the show, is if you look at the earlier two movies, the witch who's trying to either give up her witchcraft or, or to get away from something or do whatever the, the case may be in Bell Book and Candle, for example, they have to give up their witchcraft to become powerful. They are, or to become, I'm sorry, to get married, to play the role that Samantha has, they have to completely give up their witchcraft and their power. And they do, both of them do. The films end with them both giving up their power, being able to cry, sitting in their chair, knitting, etc. Um, Samantha's the evolution of that. Here she is in, in part two, let's say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the Witch Next Door part two, or Witch Wife part two, whatever you want to say. And here she is not, she's married and she's playing that role, but she didn't have to give up her witchcraft. She's trying, but she can't. So it's a great, uh, it's a great evolution. Right. Was it no? Was it unique as far as having? Because if we have Indoro, we have yeah. um, Paul Lynn's uncle. Uh, what was his name? Uncle Albert. Uncle yeah. Albert. Yeah. And then Samantha, and then evil Samantha. <laughs> uh, <laughs> was it notable as far as having these different types of witch characters within the same? show because mm -hmm. samantha is very different from endora who is very different from the mischievous you know uncle albert uh, so we're getting a variety of witches within the same property right yeah yeah and you and again it, it isn't it wasn't unique they actually lifted that from the other shows because oh. you have you have the um uh, aunt queenie in bell book and candle who's very much like andora she's fantastic um, Endora is fantastic. Similar type of what I call clown witches, and they are evolutions of each other. They are um, uh, part of that. And um, then you have Uncle Albert and um, Jack Lemon's character, her brother's name, in Bell Book and Candle. Very similar characters. Same type of role, same type of masking on, on theme and um, character purpose. So you have, it is very much lifted from that same property, as you said. And it gives, it's, gives a sense that there's this witchcraft world in and amongst humanity. And yet it's not evil yet. That comes later. This is sort of a, it, it gives the witch a family. It softens her a bit. And we have, I, I you know, I've spent a lot of time in Salem and we have, as you mentioned, Salem was early on very much represented in an American pop culture uh, with regards to witches. But Bewitched goes to Salem a lot. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think it's the Hawthorne Hotel that touts them filming there. And of course, there's the statue of of Samantha mm -hmm. in Salem. This was before Salem had embraced its reputation as a witch city. Is that correct? That's what I've been told by historians. Um, you know, I am not a I'm not a historian of Salem specifically, but I had to do a lot of reaching and talk to a lot of good folks, and and that is what it, what they said. And it wasn't in really until the seventies that uh, late sixties maybe that Salem started to embrace itself as the witch city. Today, if you go there, that's in their logo, the witch city. I think there's a there's a flying witch maybe in the police uniform or something. It's it's super fun, and the the um, the Samantha. The Samantha statue is right there. I've been to the Hawthorne too. They do, they they have pictures of Samantha and them being there. And you can actually, there's episodes you can see that in where they do go to Salem. Um, and, uh, um, but yes, they, they, they do respond. I had some reader comment or some viewer comments from the early days where they got very upset if witchcraft in Salem or in New England was represented poorly, but they didn't fully embrace themselves as America's witch city until I think it was the seventies. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now they kind of exist in this uh, amalgam spot of it's a historical location and yet of, of, you know, horrible murders and executions and yet also playful pop culture, which city it kind yeah. of occupies both spots. Yeah. And it's what's fascinating is the story originally was being told over, over and over again, or, or sort of, uh, a, a Salem-like story was being told over and over again, but then Salem emerged as it's almost with its own energy. Now, today, we'll, if something starts in Salem or a small town, New England, we know it's going to be a witch film. So it's taken on its own place in our pop culture and in our society in general and in, in meaning-wise. And so, yeah, it does. There's modern witches practicing there that gravitate to there. There's pop culture. The Satanic Temple is there now. Plus, it's got all the history, and it's really doing a good job, um, from what I understand, to really dig up and honor the the people and the history that it has. I just want to bring up a message from the comments here from the Ghost Maidens. It's a city of witch to kitsch. I I like that. <laughs> and um, they so tell talk a little bit about what happens in the '60s because it seems like there is this radical shift, and then it just keeps getting even more significant mm-hmm. with the the following decades. What really happens uh, with the '60s with importance to? both Hollywood witches and real witches. Yeah, a lot. You know, most most people listening probably know what happened in the 60s and 70s. We had a major cultural revolution. A lot of things were broken down and changed and shifted. Lots of movements, um, eye-opening movements and progressive movements. And so what that did was, first, in terms of Hollywood, um, up until the 1968, Hollywood was... Um, controlled by a censorship organization, its own, that it created a production code. Every film went through it. And so we had a lot of censorship prior to that. In 1968, Hollywood abandoned that. It realized it was it was old um, and they weren't selling tickets and they needed to stop. So they ended it in 1968. That changed everything. Um, what I like to say in terms of witchcraft films at that point, all hell broke loose because that's literally what happened prior to 1968. There were very few witchcraft horror films, very, very few. And any that you can find were happened in the 60s and probably were mostly indies. Um, very limited, low-budget films. Roger Corman had a couple. Um, the Naked Witch. Um, there's a couple others. So there was very limited. And, and that's not what we think about when we think about witchcraft films. We think horror in many cases today. So it's usually, it's very unusual. So that's the, what happened as far as witchcraft films. Um, all of a sudden, we had a rash of horror films, starting with, of course, Rosemary's Baby, which today is still one of the best witchcraft films you can watch. Um, in terms of modern witchcraft pra- practi- uh, practitioners, excuse me, this was also a time where this was becoming um, more popular. It was stepping out of the um, darkness or the broom closet, as we say in, in modern witchcraft. People were starting to um, come together to form organizations. Um, you had uh, Circle Sanctuary started in 1975, I believe. Covenant of the Goddess started in 1975. You had a g- number of books being published, and they're on the shelves. Um, books by Raymond Buckland. Gerald Gardner's books first came to the U.S. in 1970. You also had this, um, the Church of Satan founded, um, which is a little different, but uh, Anton LaVey was popular in Hollywood at the time in the late 1960s. This is all part of the progressive movements, also mingling with the women's movement, the environmental movement, and all of the other things, civil rights movement, were all coming together. And so it was a perfect place to birth um, these new, uh, the new age and also uh, occult-based religions and earth-based religions. So it was a boom for both. It was a boom for witchcraft films, the first real rush of them, and um, a boom for the modern witchcraft community, the birth, really, of it. Yeah, we have this this wave of liberalism and, and pro- progressive ideas and secularism, people breaking away from some of these traditional religious modes, and that's happening in the, sec- the 60s, and then we reach this point where there's a conservative wave towards the end of the 70s and then through the 80s. Did 
uh, obviously uh, this is a bit of a you know, <laughs> kind of on the nose, but this definitely <laughs> kind of put a damper on um, how some of the witches were being represented in pop culture. Uh, talk about the rise of conservatives, conservatism and the relationship to witchcraft on screen and how that also set the stage for the satanic panic. Yeah, so in the 70s, you had, it was mostly this outrageous, what I call um, witch exploitation, um, using, coining a term that's used in uh, film scholarship. Witch exploitation was, it was just all over the place. It was definitely a cult-based, ceremonial-based, and um, wasn't necessarily the best portrayals of witchcraft. Um, however, it was starting to merge with some realistic portrayals, um, a little bit here and there. And you also saw um, you also saw some feminism in there, some feminist films coming through in the mid '70s, and other contemplations which we hadn't seen before. Even if they weren't the best representations, it was breaking boundaries um, in in presentation. However, um, you know, by the late '70s, as you said, um, you start to see the fundamentalist uh, movement growing. The fund- um, through a number of organizations formed. And of course, in by the 1980s, we hit the beginning of the satanic panic. And it doesn't, re- that really doesn't affect Hollywood um, until the late 80s, 1987, 1988 is when we start to see the first films. And we, we get the second wave of witch films. And these are very different. In the 70s, we see coven-based films for the most part whether it's a, uh, a male-led coven like Necromancy or um, Blood Sabbath, which is um, run by a woman, regardless, they're coven-based, um, society-based. And that had a lot to do with what was going on at the time. Here we see usually a single woman who is what I call a vamp witch, a extremely sexy, um, half-naked, um, often, um, sometimes she's foreign. That's one of the cues used to overly sexualize um, women. And she's trying to take down men, or in some cases, it's a group of witches or that are trying to eat children, think Hocus Pocus, think uh, witches, um, the witching of Ben, wit- the witching of Ben. Oh, I never remember the end of that, that film. There's a number, there's a number of these movies where you have these, this happening, which parallels what's going on in the conservative movement. It's a backlash against women working, um, satanic panic fears of witches eating children or harming children. These are the, this is what's coming out with a new rash of films from late eighties into the nineties to 1996. Exactly. I, and you note that even, I mean, going back to 68 for a minute, even though it takes a while for pop culture sometimes to catch up less, less time now, because things can be made and put out uh, distributed so quickly, but 68, the author of Rosemary's Baby was even felt like inadvertently he was somewhat complicit in helping to propel the satanic panic, the, you know, planting the seeds and moving that move, that movement forward. Uh, correct. With, am I remembering correctly based on your research? Yeah, he, he was, he, he never, what he said was he never meant it to be realistic. Right. And that he also said, and so has um, Polanski, they've said that this movie was never supposed to be literal, taken literally, but everyone took it literally. Um, and I think that was the period of the time is that at, you had a time when when uh, um, Satanism through through um, the Church of Satan, witchcraft, the occult and all types of New Age stuff were so popular that it was very easy and fear too, fear of all this change and what was going on with Vietnam and, and um, Nixon and all this politics. Um, people were afraid. And of course they took this literally, which you know they say is one of the things that did launch the satanic panic or was one of the pieces of it eventually. That takes, that was 10 years later, of course. But yeah, he did say, he said it was never supposed to be literal. The book, both the director and the original writer said that too late it, it was taken literal <laughs> i mean honestly i and i i kind of took it literal as well that yeah it i guess that's just how effective of a story it is i mean you're right that we never actually see the baby and we don't never actually see satan we're seeing just hand we're seeing arms hands legs right but never uh actually satan and and 
the ghost maidens again in the comments mentioned Suspiria. I think that that's a great example as well. According to your research, the the scope of your research, we're really looking at American films and um, Suspiria was Italian, I believe. Right. So, yeah. And that's the case. I mean, he, Polanski's a genius. And so that film is, it it stands, it stands the test of time and it, it, it's creepy in the way it should be. I guess you can say it not to be taken literal, but, yeah, I always took it literal. I'm, but again, that's it was the time people were were seeing witchcraft covens coming out. There was witchcraft books. Um, people were afraid of what was who was next to them. They were afraid of what society was happening with society. Of course, they took it literal, and you know, it's. I don't think that's a problem. <laughs> what, so good. <laughs> so, continuing on with this idea of the satanic panic. You're mentioning witches eating babies, or and these are the others. They are outside the fundamentalist norms. Uh, pardon me, but this sounds kind of familiar to the times right now. Certainly, there are groups like QAnon and uh, uh, and fundamentalist Christians that are concerned about Satan worshiping cults that are eating babies. So even if we're not necessarily using the word witches, are we, do you find that we are in the throes of a revamped, refurbished satanic panic? Um, yes and no. Um, I actually wrote an article for, uh, for um, Religion Unplugged um, that covers this perfectly, that gives the history as well as comparing it to today. Um, and so, yes, we see elements of that. Um, we also see elements of the Red Scare, as I point out in the thing, which was 1950s, um, which is which is when um, which is when um, the Crucible was written, another witch based uh, narrative. And, yeah. you know, people afraid of the commies. We, we're seeing that a lot as well. Um, and um, and then, of course, throw in a little witchcraft and you've got the Salem witch trial. So I think we are definitely seeing uh, a witch, um, a, a moral panic. Um, is it specifically a satanic panic? I, I think it's broader than that. I think I must... it's broader than that. But yes, um, there is elements absolutely of the satanic panic. Um, I don't think it'll look the same yet. I think Dungeons and Dragons is probably still on the shelves and nobody's complaining about Pokemon right now. <laughs> so... <laughs> So is this current movement enough to influence pop culture, uh, influence a wave of pop culture, or do you think that the pop culture that comes out will simply be perhaps commenting on those that are panicking? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think that this movement um, has been happening for a number of years, and there's been a witchcraft um, evolution of or a wave of films that started, as I said earlier, around 2013, which I think is in reaction to the movements we've seen over the past 10 years, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter. We're seeing a real change in the way witchcraft is presented. So I don't think we're going to see what we saw in the 80s with the witches of Eastwick or witchcraft or um, warlock where, where you have this single powerful, terrifying witch trying to destroy babies or men or whatever the case. I think it's a, we're in a different time. And I think witchcraft, modern witchcraft, that is real practice um, since that period of time has become more accepted. Um, practices like tarot and astrology have become more mainstream that I don't think the backlash will be the same if there's one. And I haven't really seen a backlash yet. What I've seen is more of Hollywood trying to uh, diversify the way it presents witchcraft. I think our fears are different. We're looking for a hero and it may be the witch in this case. Yeah, or it, it, you know, from what I've been seeing with whether it's Midsummer or The Witch, or I mentioned to you in an email the film Hellbender, and there's another one coming up called She Will uh, that's in theaters now. Have you seen it? I saw She Will. Yes, I saw She Will and Hellbender. We watched both of them. Mm-hmm. Great. And and 
it seems like now we're having these witches that maybe are not pure good, but they're they are symbols of empowerment and their magic, their power is is being used as a tool to push back on perhaps injustices, intolerance and and also uh, misogyny. Exactly. And, you know, what you started to see in 2013-14 is is this look at witchcraft not as an essential evil or an essential good. The binary has gone. What it becomes is it's a tool. It's a path. It's it's a journey. And that the person can go either way with it. A person can be a witch and be evil or a person can be a witch and be good or a mix of both, as you see in Beautiful Creatures. I, she's had one of each eye. So now what you're seeing is an extension of that. And in movies like um, She Will and Hellbender, the use of magic, sometimes you're, you're, you're morally pushed and tr- challenged by, well, I don't agree with what she's doing. That's a problematic. Where's she going with that? But at the same time, you understand why she might be um, doing something against your own ethics you you have a complicated relationship with these characters now um and it's like getting back to Elphaba, getting back to um sabrina the teenage witch uh, no i'm sorry not sabrina the um the the adventures of sabrina the new one i'm sorry <laughs> the new the the new sabrina the, that came out the netflix out. one yeah the netflix one sorry um you're starting to see this complex morality with which around witchcraft and the practice of magic magic isn't necessarily bad um and witches can do things that are maybe not so great, or they might do things that are great. And a lot of witches now that are presented have been harmed in some way. Um, they've been oppressed, like you said. And and if magic is, or if witchcraft and magic are an allegory for personal power, you know, that gives you the power. Turning to witchcraft gives you a power that you're not afforded in another uh, experience. Yeah, I think you touched on this earlier, but I want to rephrase it and, and ask more explicitly. The genre, the the movement of we had the craft, we had Charmed, we had Buffy uh, Willow from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And how do you think that the younger people, specifically uh, younger women watching these installments of pop culture how has that impacted now that they are adult women and also creatives and moving through hollywood what do you think that that ripple effect and evolution was um well you know the craft was sort of at the at the point where the satanic panic ended and this is a new representation of of witchcraft we now had good witchcraft we had a binary wicca was good and witchcraft was bad is what was being told in pop culture at that point wicca was the the, the dressing they put on it essentially um and and i say that only in a in a pop culture format not necessarily realistic um ways but wicca became the way that hollywood was able to move into a space where it could be accepted it could present these positive um representations of witchcraft so children girls um really any genders anyone who was watching those films and inspired by those whether they became a witch or not took that forward now wicca um and then eventually witchcraft as well were not necessarily bad so when you move forward 10 years 20 years and now they're in hollywood writing scripts whether they're a witch or not um they grew up with this understanding that was presented in the 90s and then eventually bled into the 2000s and a lot of tv shows that that witchcraft has many faces and that that could then be explored in the 2010s when when these well i don't know age groups here but 2010s when you started writing your own you know scripts and and shows and um movies and such you can you had that backstory in your own brain that narrative oh yeah that's right there was good stuff in the craft actually we've seen a lot of remakes of those 90s uh shows recently Sabrina, uh, the craft, le- uh, legacy, um, charm came back. Um, am I missing one? There was a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Hocus yeah. Pocus is coming back. <laughs> Hocus Pocus is coming back. That's right. Yeah, I, and, and even though, as you mentioned, it was 
it was not a box office success and it was critically panned. It has such a massive following now that all of the, I guess, millennials, um, they, you know, uh, Gen Xers and millennials love that movie so much. The, uh, it is worth mentioning and it's come up in the comments that Harry Potter, and I know Harry Potter exists in sort of a challenging space as far as your scope of research, but can you just discuss where that fits within your studies and the impact of, of Potterdom, the wizarding world? Yeah, the Harry Potter effect is what I talk about. And Harry Potter, um, the our Harry Potter films were largely, were so British um, culturally based that I, I didn't give them, I could have given them a full chapter probably, <laughs> um, number of films alone. But um, what I talk about is the Harry Potter effect. So in that period of time when Harry Potter um, films were out, the 2000s, um, witchcraft films really were sort of uh, declining in popularity, but yet you had Harry Potter. So what was that? Harry Potter, I would argue, is not a traditional witchcraft film. It's it's an, it's an um, a boy's he- coming of age story. It's a hero story, similar to what you might see with Star Wars um, with, a, with a witchcraft overlay, which is really makes it very fun. Um, however, it um, fell into the 2000s, the popularity of the fantasy films of the 2000s, the epic fantasy films. You had other ones like um, Lord of the Rings trilogy came out then, and so did um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So you had all this fantasy base. So it was really fell into that. And a lot of this was geared at teens. So what was the effect? Of course, um, you know, Hollywood likes to copy itself. So you wind up with um, movies that other movies and TV shows that sort of replicate the idea of the witching world and uh, witchcraft families and exploring that like twitches um and the was it the wizarding the wizarding world um the the disney tv show that was on the waverly place waverly yes the witches of waverly waverly place is that what it is or the wizards of waverly place so you have sort of the harry potter effect of teen witches light fair um fantasy based witching worlds and that sort of came from the harry potter popularity but for the most part harry potter was a um a hero story a classic hero story i'm going to bring up this question that witchcraft seems to be turning into an aesthetic more than a practice well i'll pose it as a question is witchcraft turning seem to be turning into more of an aesthetic uh than a practice and i guess with that I was personally curious about sort of how you view the relationship between, I'll say, sort of the hot top, hot topic witchy memes that emerged about 20, 25 years ago. And then now the the coffee cups and the resting witch face and <laughs> pop culture witchcraft as how does that fit within sort of the scheme of of your take? Is it is it more of an aesthetic than a practice? Um, absolutely not. Um, I think what, what we're responding to now is that it's become more popular. There is a growing number of people who actually practice, um, and that the pagan and and the witchcraft community is growing and they're sincere. And in fact, um, I, one of my beats for journalism is, is witchcraft is, is witchcraft in the witchcraft world that exists very strongly. And like I said, it is growing, um, with that, with that said, um, we see a growth in the interest in witchcraft and the aesthetic that is also growing. So if you're not involved in uh, the witchcraft community, all you see is the aesthetic, you might say, well, it's more than just, it's probably more aesthetic than it is practice. That's absolutely not the case. But of course, to the average person walking down the street who isn't involved in the witchcraft community, who doesn't know people in the Wiccan world or in any of those adjacent worlds, all you're gonna see is the aesthetic, the cups and the hats. It's kind of like October all year round. You know, and um, and you know, some witches, uh, uh, to be honest, um, talking to the community, some witches have a problem with that. They they don't like the their sincere religious um, and spiritual practice being taken over by or commodified is 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 the right term. However, um, then there are witches um, like myself who who really don't care. Um, you know, as long as people are practicing sincerely as well. Um, you know. A, a mug that says resting witch face isn't really you know it's great it's out there it's fun 
you know, so you have that sort of dichotomy and in, in really seeing this aesthetic, um, some people practicing as just an aesthetic that happened in the nineties too, with the craft and, and Buffy the vampire slayer and charmed. I mean, that was the same thing. It's, 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 it's going to happen. Um, it happens with all subcultures. Um, it's, it's not necessarily a huge deal. Um, in my opinion anyway. Um, and it's a sign that witchcraft has become more mainstream and more accepted um, to a degree, uh, if witchcraft can exist in the center or can be accepted, <laughs> it's, it's getting more accepted. It is, you know, the tolerated, the memes, the coffee cups and everything. I certainly see the reasoning that when you are seriously practicing this as, as a spiritual belief system, how you can might maybe view that as offensive. On the flip side, does not that does that not also add to the tolerance and the acceptance when it's being done in a fun way and not in a way of persecuting those witches? It's lower craft witchcraft, lowercase witchcraft. It's it's the easily accessible, um, yeah, pop culture version of witchcraft. Right, and that has always existed, um, and that's that's the that's the reality of it. That you can't. It's a, it's the double face. Exactly what you're saying. It's it's going to be one. It's going to be part and parcel. And and really, when when witchcraft started in Hollywood, nobody believed witchcraft existed. Um, and that's one of the things I point out in my book is it's it's important to understand that when the Hollywood producers actually say this in some of their documents, witchcraft did not exist. It was all kitsch back then. So our culture has always has shown this as kitsch. It wasn't until the 60s and 70s where we started to see it emerge as a spiritual and religious. So we can't, we're, so our, our, our society is not going to just throw away that Halloween fun. And then as witchcraft gets more popular, as tarot and occult gets more popular, people want to take that on as an, an, as an aesthetic as well. They want to try it on. And sometimes that leads to sincere practice. And I apologize. Sorry, I lost you for a moment. We timed out for a second. But the uh, moving forward, I guess, and just you you mentioned this in a, a Twitter um, post that in a tweet, also known as tweet Twitter post. I don't know. I, I don't know what that <laughs> phrasing is. You mentioned this in a tweet. Uh, and I think this was more specific to the satanic panic. But uh, the Stranger Things versus Midnight Mass, where a lot of people are gravitating to Stranger Things right now as an example, a prime example of of uh, commenting on on the satanic panic. But you tend to take a different spin on that. Yeah, and and I love Stranger Things, um, big fan. Um, and they do capture the the um, aesthetic and the um, narrative, the Satanic Panic, perfectly. I mean, there's elements of it, but they're doing a lot in that show, so they don't really dive into it. Uh, the um, psychological aspects of aspects of the Satanic, which there were um, deep psychological aspects that that they. Stranger Things just can't explore in what they're doing, which is fine. That's no criticism to say Stranger Things. Um, the fact that they captured in, especially in the last couple episodes, or maybe it's the third one or fourth one, was was perfect. But at the same time, they're presenting that hell versus heaven um, or good versus bad binary is what I said in my tweet that that um, that doesn't really that misses the point that actually feeds a satanic panic. And, and that's not the intention of stranger things. That's just the story and that narrative. Um, but midnight mass gets into the psychology of moral panic. And that's why if you really want to understand, and especially it's so pertinent today to it starts slow, but as you, as it, as it builds over its, what is it? Six or nine shows? I think it, it nine very long end. episodes nine very long episodes it it's it's slow in the beginning but it pays off stick with it i promise you will you you will feel satisfied by the end it it really dives in especially the last three or four episodes into that into the more mo, as i said the psychology the the mass psychology of it's of a moral panic what leads people to follow somebody um even if it's against their ethics their morality to follow somebody down a path that might be problematic that might lead you to harm a loved one for example what leads people to do that and then in the end well i won't give it away yeah midnight mass is is excellent and yeah. i mean both stranger things are in, and midnight mass are yeah. 
Absolutely. This season of Stranger Things and Midnight Mass, excellent in very different ways. But mm-hmm. as someone that was raised Catholic, I especially related to Midnight Mass and was also terrified by mm-hmm. it. But uh, finally, before I let you go, just any predictions about you know what else we might be seeing um, down the road with uh, you know you, you mentioned this earlier, but witchcraft and witches and pop culture and you know, what, what do you think the next chapter is going to be when you have to release another volume of this? <laughs> well, I always like to say that my crystal ball is at the shop, so I'm not exactly sure. But um, I would like to see it it um, parallel what I'm seeing in the witchcraft practice and the popularity of, of different witchcraft movements. Um and I'm seeing a lot more um, interest in folk magics right now, rather than specifically Wicca, although Wicca is still popular. So I think we're going to see, and I would like to see, um, a more of a representation of magical practices that are not specifically aligned with what we've seen before, that are a little bit more aligned with various um, diversity, um, like we saw in the new Witches 2020, where we saw the woman was a hoodoo practitioner and very positively shared uh, and represented. Um, we see all kinds of folk magic practices. And I just worked on a book that shows the depth and beauty of, of the different types of magical practices that we have here. So I would like to see more of that. So I'm hoping the next chapter is talking about that in some respect. I don't know, though. It's hard to say because the witch, as I say all the time, is, yeah, she is popular now. The aesthetic is popular, but she always exists in the liminal. She always is pushing boundaries, so she's always on the edge. And like I say at the end of my book, perhaps she's actually ahead of our time. So, um, you know, she's always going to be there pushing boundaries of her society. So um, it really depends where we land, where she winds up landing. All right. And finally, how can people support you? How can they follow you on social media and perhaps even pick up some witchy merch? (laughs) Well, um, let's see. I am on heathergreen.net. That's my website. You can find me and all of my different links there, heathergreen.net. It's a little under construction, but stick with me. I'm, I'm updating it. I hear usability is important, right? Um, and I'm on Twitter, Mira Selena zero one. Um, you can support me by buying my book and reading. And if you do buy my book, there are lists at the vast, at the end of each chapter that have the films I used in that chapter. Really, really important. Make sure you watch the movies as you read. This is not a textbook. You have to read cover to cover, watch the movies and let me know on Twitter. I'd love to hear from people. What movies are you watching? What movie wasn't in the book that I should have reviewed and I, I need to review? I'd love to talk to you about it. And um, and then if you want witchy merch, I have I do support. It's not my Etsy site, but um, it is a loved one's Etsy site. Uh, Bewitched, thebewitchedhome.com is the website linked to the Etsy site where you can get some fun witchy merch for your witchcraft practice or for Halloween, which is coming up in a couple months. And uh, and just because it was a final comment sliding in uh, that even if it's not American, uh, you, you probably still want to hear about great movies, even though the focus of your book was about American pop culture. Absolutely. I in fact, I'm, I have it. I'm, you won't you won't. What is it? You won't be alone, which is not American. I'm, I'm all about watching that one soon. So I'd love to hear anyone who's seen that one. And yes, any which movie, any movie. Uh big fan tell me what you watching and the book is lights camera witchcraft by my guest heather green it's a great book it's so uh detailed and i am already craving another edition (laughs) of it and heather thank you so very much for your time um, being so gracious with your time it was just a fascinating conversation and i thank you for it thank you very much for the opportunity i love talking about witches anytime and i'll and, work uh, on that second edition right well hang out backstage for me for a second and i'll be right back with you and guys yeah heather green seriously i i love nerding out with someone that has just delved into research in this way and I can't recommend this book enough. I, I really enjoyed it. it. It really is a perfect 
paranormal pop culture research tome. So you want to get it and keep it around and use it as a also a film reference guide. Now, before I leave you, we're doing something new. We want to hear from you. So we want to get your strange stories. Family folklore, legends, paranormal stories, all of it, all of it. You can write up these stories or you can record them and send us audio and we might read them or play them in a future episode of Talking Strange. So just email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com. Aside from that, thank you for joining. Don't forget to subscribe and download each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, quite honestly. And check out the Talking Strange videos at youtube.com slash denofgeekus. And I'd love to hear from you personally, at Aaron Sagers on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Patreon, and at Talk Strange Pod on Twitter. Until next time, my spooky friends, be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird.